at underscore WWOTS, sponsored by John's Beard. Yeah, that was golden. I love I it. I like simplicity and I like it to be very couples clean. All acted very simple. The matching couples. Oh my lord, I hate the matching couples. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm attracted to normal looking women. Right, but that's not accurate. You have weird taste. Those are all things that most of us could really improve on. It's gonna, it's gonna vary wildly, if anyone listens at all. That's what I call interesting. No real substance? That's super interesting. Fascinating almost. Welcome to While We're on the Subject, where we talk about what we talk about. Now, here's the show. Hi, Mike. Hey, John. What was on your mind this week? So I've been thinking about a number of our earlier episodes, mm-hmm. and there are quite a few things that I want to follow up on from some earlier episodes. But to start with, mm-hmm. I wanted to revisit the whole concept that you brought up around optimism and pessimism, because mm-hmm. we had talked about discussing it in terms of immigration and, and immigrants mentality. And I just was wondering your thoughts on how that applies. I kind of see immigrants as intrinsically optimistic. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can see what you're saying. Because generally, when you're leaving somewhere, the reason you're leaving is for a better opportunity. And so yes. when you're leaving, you have to believe that the place you're going to provides a better opportunity. You can't go somewhere being like, oh man, this place is going to be just as bad as the last place. True. That's very true. That's a very good point, actually. And to follow up on that, the fact that immigrants' lives tend to be better when they get to a new place, and the children of immigrants tend to do much, much better than the immigrants themselves. Right. And often better than the average population of the place they go to. Mm -hmm. Or at least in the US, that doesn't apply to Europe as much. Um, But those facts mean, I, I think... I'm not sure if the immigrant would necessarily have been optimistic before mo- moving. One, one would think that they would be, as we just said. But like, right. certainly once they get there, their mentality is at least shifted toward optimism. Mm-hmm. And the only counter to this that I see that I was thinking about is the fact that a lot of immigrants in really bad situations, like refugees right. in particular, right, would probably be pushed into leaving because of terrible circumstances right. and often circumstances that recently got much worse right mm-hmm. and so it's hard to see like I, I wasn't sure what i thought about whether or not that would make people angry sad and pessimistic or if the fact that they still left and pursued something better kind of implies that they're more optimistic you know yeah i think people like that just kind of accept their life you know like this is my mm-hmm. life now yeah not, this is terrible this is new it's just more like a, I can't go back home. I can't. Just a kind of is what it is yeah, mentality. Yeah, this is, this is home now. I'm not just going to give up that. and die here because I don't speak the language anymore or yeah. what have you. But do you think that maybe there's some immigrants who are just really pessimistic about the situation they're in? Not necessarily refugees, right? Mm. Their situation is terrible and it's kind of out of their hands when they leave. But maybe someone who's living in Mexico or Guatemala or El Salvador, just like, this place sucks. This is just terrible. I can't deal with this. There's no coming back from this place. I have to leave. Yeah, that is one of the other sides, right? Like, Mm -hmm. a good reason for a person to leave the Mm -hmm. place that they live is if they don't think it's going to get any better. Like, I moved away from Los Angeles because I had no, like, obviously the weather's not going to get better. Well, I don't like the weather in Los Angeles. Disclaimer, because it's too hot, it's too sunny. But... Like, obviously, that's not going to change. What? What? I just said you hate good weather. Oh, yeah, that's true. So, obviously, the weather's not going to change. But also, I don't think that 
in terms of the structure of the city and having to drive everywhere and it being really expensive, like none of those things are going to improve. So it's kind of a pessimistic mentality if you're just like, give up on this place and move to a better place that's already better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, it's funny because the more I think about optimism and pessimism just as constructs, right. the more it seems like most pessimistic ideas are optimistic if you look at them from a different perspective. Mm. How? Well, just that idea. Like, right. if you look at the place that you're living and you're saying it's not going to get any better, but I can move somewhere else and make it better. Well, then the fact that you're pessimistic about your place, I, I guess well, it's right. not that that is optimistic in a different way, but I think it's that people can still, like, right. their actions can still be so- seen as optimistic, even if that. they are actually pessimistic. Hmm. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I guess it makes it harder to distinguish optimism and pessimism with immigration then. Yeah. Right? Because these aren't people who are like, well, my situation's terrible. There's nothing I can do about my situation. True. Would it be optimism or pessimism or would it be just someone who's who's like a doer? Someone who's like motivated to get out of the situation they're in, not necessarily because they hopes for a brighter future, but they just want to find a place where they can work hard and gain something. There's- People that will take action. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- I, d- I do think that that is the primary distinguishing factor of someone who immigrates to a new place. Right. W- what you just said, that they are kind of proactive mm-hmm. by definition, right? Because they've right. taken the action to do this. But yeah, you're, you're entirely right that it very well and almost certainly is other things about the person that cause them to be an immigrant as opposed to just right. being an optimist. Because there's lots of optimistic people. Right. extremely optimistic people that never leave. I mean, if you were outrageously optimistic, there, there would be no reason to leave, right? right. And you just think everything's going to get better. Mm-hmm. Which actually brings me to another kind of perspective on this idea that I wanted to discuss, right. which is people's appetite for risk. Mm-hmm. Because when you're looking at immigrants, obviously they're taking a risk. You know, huge. Right. I think people often think about risk. And especially, like, my background is in finance. I studied finance and stuff at school. And... All people talk about in finance really is risk. And stuff is music. What? I was just letting good people know that and stuff means music. Oh, yeah. True, true, true. Yeah, let the people know you, John. Open up a little. <laughs> so you um, finance, risk. Yeah, so everyone focuses on risk. And what's interesting to me is this idea that everyone is focused on risk, but people aren't enough focused on whether something is known or unknown, right? Mm, Okay. So everyone, I think, would say moving to a new country is highly risky. Yes. But I don't actually think that's true in the kind of most fundamental sense. I think that moving to another country is fundamentally unknown. You're Mm -hmm. moving into the unknown. You don't know what's going to happen. Right. You have no clue. But... It's not actually that risky. Like when I moved to Korea or when I moved to France, those are both peaceful, stable countries. And you had a plan going there. And I had a visa. Yeah, like I had a job or I was going to school. Like either way, I was pretty well set up. So it wasn't like a super risky move. It was just hugely unknown what would happen, how I would deal with it, how everything would go. And so going back to just immigrants... I don't think for most of them, like certainly with legal immigration, mm-hmm. if you're moving to a place, it's not really a risk, you know? That's true. 
like it's possible that it could go badly, but no more possible that it could go badly than moving to another city in your current right. country or anything like that. But it is extremely unknown. That's true. But I would assume that being willing to do something like that does require some optimism too, mm. right? That you're prepared to move to a different place or maybe you don't speak the language or the culture is different than what you're used to or you know, you're not around sure, people yeah. that you're familiar with. Even if the situation is different still require you know a lot of optimism on the part of the person who's making the decision to leave even if it's only temporary and because it's going to be more difficult and different it's going to also require that doer mentality that we were talking about being Mm -hmm. very proactive um that's very true but this idea around people's appetite for the unknown is a really interesting concept to me because when you look at a lot of people's actions Mm-hmm. I think they're hugely affected by how willing people are to not know the outcome of what they're going to do. Like if you look at careers, right? a lot of people choose careers because they know exactly the path they can follow. They know exactly what their income is going to be. Like if you become a doctor, you know the path every year that you're going to follow right. through your training and your schooling and then in your job and everything else. Like you know that that's known. If you go and you try to become an artist or you go and try to become even something that's extremely stable and a good job, like you want to go become, I don't know, some guy working at a think tank, right? Okay. Whatever it is. Or, sorry, go go on. Sorry, I was going to use startup, but I don't know if that's very stable. Well, no, but a startup is a fine example of the unknown. Like you have no idea what will come out. And even if you have good odds of something being successful you still have no clue what's going to happen so a lot of people who i think most people would think of as risk averse Mm -hmm. aren't necessarily being risk averse by avoiding those situations they're avoiding the unknown they're sticking with something that they know and sticking with something that can be predicted accurately and and like when you look at investing when you look at stocks versus investing in bonds right Mm -hmm. If you were to invest in a broad portfolio, right? So if you were to invest in a lot of different things, stocks always pretty much give you a better return over the long run than bonds. Mm -hmm. But bonds are much more predictable about what they will give you. If you just hold them, they'll pay you every year and then you'll get your principal back. Mm -hmm. Whereas stocks, some of them will go up, some of them will go bankrupt, some of them, like, it's all over the place. Right. So it's very unknown what's going to happen with the stocks. But the risk isn't actually higher if you're diversified in your investments. The risk is lower because stocks over the long run just go up Mm -hmm. much more than bonds do. Right. But it's unknown when and how that will happen. And that's what people are really avoiding. And so I've just been thinking a lot about how in my life over the last few years, I've had to go into the unknown a lot that's true yeah certainly moving to other countries going into new careers trying to learn things that i don't know at all Mm -hmm. those things are all obviously hugely unknown quantities that you kind of have to grapple with and i think about a lot of conversations i've had with people and how a lot of people back home a lot of people that i've met since are really not very open to approaching things that are unknown right and they don't like things that that they aren't already familiar with it's funny i was reading about i want to say it was like hemingway and there's this story about him okay and i don't know if it's a true story i'm just gonna throw that in there in case it's not a true story and people like you're a liar yeah i'm not a liar this i read it somewhere i don't know how reliable the source was yeah let's call it a fable sure yeah it is what it is yeah so i guess hemingway 
he's like a man's man or whatever. He liked to go sparring at this gym that Jack Dempsey sparred at. Remind me who Jack Dempsey is again? He was a heavyweight world champion boxer during his okay. time. For some reason, I thought he was a gangster. Um, but I mean, I can see where you would get that. Jack Dempsey does sound kind of like a gangster's name. Right? It sounds like Dillinger to me. I yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Well, anywho, I guess there'd been a lot of times where Hemingway had offered or requested to spar Jack Dempsey. Sure. Sounds like Hemingway. Uh-huh. And Dempsey declined, right? He was like, no, I can't do it. No, I can't do it. The reason that he declined to spar against Hemingway was because he noticed that he had this like look in his eye. You know, Hemingway had this look in his eye, like he had something to prove. Okay. Jack Dempsey knew that if he had boxed him, the only way to stop him was if he hurt him really badly. And he just didn't want to do that mm. to someone. Because yeah, the gap in yeah. skill was probably pretty large, despite how tough imagine. Hemingway was, right? But I think it was fascinating because it's this guy who wanted to take on the unknown, you know, the risk. Like, yeah. was he capable? Could he do it? Could he box like a professional champion level boxer? Mm. And so... I guess the point that I was thinking of, because you're saying similar about people who go into the unknown, just yeah, because they don't know how it's going to go, and it's kind of scary and aversive. Yeah, but I would have to assume that a lot of people that generally do tend to be successful, or at least run the risk of success. Because if you're willing to try things that you're afraid of, you're bound to stick to something that you're good at. Well, and this is my point. This is why I don't like the fact that people talk about it as risk, mm -hmm. because you brought up a very good example of like startups. For somebody going to work in a startup mm -hmm. or just starting a startup yourself, a lot of people look at that and say, that's really risky. But it's not actually really risky. Like the consequences of failure are pretty low. Mm -hmm. You're not going to suddenly be homeless on the street and get shot with a shotgun. Like nothing bad <laughs> is really going to happen, <laughs> right? Yeah. But it's extremely unknown. And th this is my point. I think a lot of things that people perceive as risky mm -hmm. are just you don't know what's going to happen. And so either the consequences aren't that bad or the odds of those bad consequences are much lower than most people would normally think. It's just that since you have no idea what's going to happen, it leaves this whole possibility for people to think about, oh, well, there's potentially bad things that could happen. Right. So those things are much more likely because people have no idea what's going to happen. But it's not actually the case. And, and this is so much what I think people face when you're talking about like people quitting their jobs and trying to move to a job they like better or something like that. Right. A lot of people see that as a risk, but it's not a risk. It's just change and something that is unknown. You don't know what you're walking into. And so it's not risky. The right. odds are that if you want to quit your job, the job that you're going to move to is better or at least different in some interesting way. Mm -hmm. But you don't know what's going to happen. So it seems risky to people. And this actually brings me pretty nicely to the other piece of follow-up that I wanted to talk about. All right. Which is on empiricism and rationalism. We had that conversation, I don't know, at some point in the last few weeks. We definitely did. Yes. And one of the things that I was thinking about and actually kind of applies to what we were just talking about in terms of looking at optimism and pessimism and changing your perspective around risk and uh -huh. changing it to thinking about it in terms of the unknown right. is the idea of placing lenses over your reality, okay? Mm -hmm. To allow yourself to understand the world in a more specific and different way than you normally view it, all right? Okay. I know that might sound like a weird, complicated idea at first, but it's extremely useful for the way I live my life, and I think it is useful for everyone if you figure out how to make use of it. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so here's the kind of idea. So when we were talking about empiricism and rationalism, right. it was looking at decision-making and saying, well, what lens should we look at our decisions through? Should we try to look at it as an empiricist or should we try to look at it as a rationalist? And you can put a lot of lenses into looking at the world around you and it makes things look different. It makes the causality look different. It makes right. the purpose of people look very different. This obviously mostly applies to decision-making, but one of the most important ones that I use all the time is thinking about things in terms of margin and marginal, like marginal cost, marginal whatever. Okay? Right. Just marginal thinking is kind of how I think about it. Do you know about the concept of marginal cost? No, I do not. Okay. So it's this concept from economics that essentially says, like, let's just pretend we're a company right now. Okay. And let's say we make basketballs, okay? Mm-hmm. So the cost of making a basketball is mostly in like the factory and the machines and all of that, right? Right. So if you have to pay tons and tons of money to make the first basketball, the first basketball is extremely expensive, but that's okay because you're going to make a million basketballs. Right. The idea of marginal cost is instead of looking at the average cost, including all of those machines and everything, you want to look at what the cost of the next basketball to produce is. Okay. So you're looking at if you've already made a million basketballs, how much does it cost to make that million and one basketball? Okay. That's not the average cost of making a basketball. That's much, much lower because you don't have to buy the machines again. You don't have to buy the factory again. You don't have to do all of that. You don't have to figure out how to make a basketball. Right. You just have to buy the materials, pay the laborer, pay the electricity, and then make it. And so that is used in business as a decision-making tactic to determine whether or not you should continue producing and selling what you're doing, or you should stop production, right? So you look at a lot of industries that are really capital-intensive, that cost a lot to start. Uh -huh. like a lot of times, the steel industry sells steel at a price lower than the cost of the steel. Right. And that's why the U.S. has brought up tariffs and stuff a lot of the time, and like tried to stop it because it's called dumping if it's done across borders. And that's this whole big hoopla. But it's a common thing because the cost of producing the next ton of steel is lower than the price. But the average cost of the steel is higher than the price. So it doesn't make any sense in the long term. But to make that next one, it does make sense. Uh -huh. So it changes the decision-making perspective that you have. Right. And what I find is useful is to think about that in terms of everything you do. Okay. What's like an example that you would apply it to in your personal life? Okay, let, let's look at this podcast, for instance. Uh -huh. If I'm editing it, right? Right. Let's say I've put in an hour of editing, okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I want to look at it in a marginal way, then I say, well, what's the value of doing another hour or another 10 minutes of editing? Mm -hmm. Is it more or less than the cost of that time to me? Okay. So it's like it's it's a way of thinking about when do you stop doing something. Right. Well, I because mean, you're not trying to decide whether or not to do it, you're trying to decide when to stop. Right. And that applies to everything. Yeah, I guess that's generally what I do when I practice pool. At some point, it's not worth it to keep playing. Right. Well, and you have to look at it in terms of everything, right? So, for instance, when I've studied languages, like you you get to a, a point where continuing to study or continuing to practice gives you diminishing returns. Yep. And these diminishing returns eventually are not worthwhile. And you have to determine when they stop being worthwhile. 
But thinking about it in terms of that diminishing return and determining when that's no longer worthwhile allows you to to make decisions around when to stop something as opposed to trying to make decisions about whether or not it's worth it to do it at all. Mm-hmm. And I find that, like, leave marginal thinking to the side for a second. Right. Like, just the idea of trying to view reality through different lenses like that mm-hmm. to say that I'm actually going to look at decisions in a particular way allows you to think about things in a more nuanced way and allows you to understand reality in a more complex way. Mm-hmm. This can be applied in a lot of different zones. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, like, let's say you're a business executive and you always think about things in terms of cost, you're a finance guy or what have you, mm-hmm. changing your perspective so that you go through all of your decision-making in terms of the impact on the employees. Right. Well, that will change your decision-making and change your thinking around what your decision should be. And that can be really useful if you find yourself in a situation and you're not making the right decisions. It allows you to reorient and focus on different things Mm -hmm. by explicitly trying to think about things from a very particular perspective. I'm not sure if this is hitting home. I mean, no, I definitely understand what you're saying. Right, I know you understand it. I'm not sure if you appreciate the value of it or not. Mm, I can. I can appreciate the value. Okay. I mean, from like a perspective where maybe I'm doing something, Mm. what perspective I should have when I'm doing different things. I can see the value there in that context. Well, and when you're struggling with a decision. I can I can see how that would be. <laughs> okay. I mean. I, I feel like I haven't explained this particularly well or given very good examples. I should think about it more and try to articulate it better another time. I do understand what you're saying. I think you just okay. used strange examples. Or maybe I misunderstood you. Because you were saying, let's look at someone's decision making. Right. And so you'd be like, well, we can see them and think that they're making decisions based on this. But if we assume that they're making a decision based on that then obviously their perspective is different right the way i understood you were saying it was not necessarily how you apply it but how we could see other people's decision making well it's both right because it's it's trying to understand your own decisions but also understand the world around you i mean that is valuable well because because here's here's the thing like i think most people look at reality as kind of this just objective thing that exists right. that we exist within. And that is not really an accurate way of viewing reality. Right. It's definitely reality not. is made up of a lot of different people's perspectives, mm. right? If you look at things in different ways, people's actions and the events that occur have very different meanings. Well, yes. Your perspective is very important. And so actively thinking about things from different perspectives gives you a better understanding of reality in terms of your own decision-making, in terms of other people's decision-making, in terms of everything that happens. Yeah, I understand that. Okay. I just, even when I think of people looking at other people's Mm decision-making from different perspectives, ultimately they defer to their own personal perspective, right? Because people are generally a single perspective, I think. Okay. Even if someone could look at someone else's decision-making, I just don't think it would really be valuable to them because ultimately they're just going to defer to their own perception of reality and go, well, what they're doing is wrong or their motivation is wrong. They need a different motivation. <laughs> right, but, but this is this is the whole point, right? Like Because the simplest solution in a lot of situations, like let's take the 
go-to example of Hitler, right? Like Uh, most people look at Hitler and just say, well, Hitler was evil. Well, if you're looking at what Hitler did through other lenses in terms of like financial or in terms of just wanting power or in terms of wanting the greatness of his country or, or whatever it is, right? Those different motivations color those actions a lot. And I mean, we don't right. can't really understand all of the motivations that go into his decision making, but viewing it through different lenses allows you to look at it and say, oh, no, it's not just he is evil. It's he had specific motivations or potentially had specific motivations for specific actions outside of his general evilness, you know? Right. And so when you look at somebody and you say, oh, well, that person is a terrible person. Well, understanding why they might be doing it, like people do things for reasons. Right. It's not just because they're evil or just because they're stupid. Sometimes it's just because they're stupid, but like <laughs> for the most I mean, part, they have people some can do reason. something just because they're stupid. Sometimes people can do things just because they're evil. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, vice versa, like a good person might just do a good thing because they're a good person. You know, I don't actually agree with what you just said. Now, as I think about it, like people will do things because they're stupid. Right. And that is true, but I don't think anyone really thinks of themselves as evil. Like, I don't think Hitler to go with that example, was like, I'm going to kill all of the Jews because I'm evil. I think he was like, I'm going to kill all of the Jews because I think the Jews should be killed. And he thought that, that was a better thing. Do you know what I mean? No, I understand. I understand okay. that. And that's a good example. I'm just saying there's probably some person out there who's like, I just like hurting people. And so I decided to hurt this person because I like to hurt people. Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm not I saying guess. that yeah. all actions that are evil is because someone was feeling like they were evil. Just, I'm sure there's a couple people out there who just are like, "I'm feeling evil today. What evil okay. thing am I gonna do?" <laughs> yeah, that's maybe. I, I I think that that's much less common than people doing stupid things because they haven't thought about them. Well, I mean, I'm uh, sure that's true. <laughs> well, but but my point is that you don't have to actively be stupid. You can right. just be stupid without <laughs> like having any intention at all. That's fair. There's a lot to go into trying to view things in different perspective, trying to understand things in a nuanced way. Like this is, as I think we've talked about before, one of the reasons why I constantly try to surround myself with people who think very differently from myself. And if you Mm -hmm. look at my array of friends, it's mostly people that I either disagree with a lot or people who are able to disagree with me and not hate me. Yeah. No, that's that's true. <laughs> Which is you, a necessary thing, I think. You and uh, I feel so bad at forgetting his name. Chase. Yeah. You and Chase, your relationship is very interesting because you guys seem to be very opposite in your political ideals. Just about everything, really. Our lifestyle ideals, everything. Yeah, very different. And yet you guys get along so well. I find it fascinating. This is the whole thing that I think a lot of people really are terrible at for no apparent reason. You have to value people for what you value them for. And you're not going to value everyone the same way, and you're not going to value everyone for everything about them, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if I have a friend who is a drunk, let's say, just drinks way too much all the time, yeah. that doesn't mean that that person can't have any value in my life. That means that I'm not going to be friends with them and go do things with them when they're getting hammered all the time. But they can still be valuable in other parts of my life. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that I have people 
who I really like for certain things. And it's important to accept that that person doesn't have to fill every part of your life. To take this to romantic relationships, mm-hmm. which are admittedly more complicated, if you have a girlfriend, she doesn't have to necessarily be somebody that you hang out at the bar with or watch sports with or something like that. Like That doesn't necessarily have to be a thing that you do with your girlfriend. You could do that and not do that with your girlfriend. And you don't have to be upset with your girlfriend because she doesn't want to go watch sports with you if she's not into sports. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people would accept that. And that applies to a whole lot of different things in a romantic relationship and understanding that you can get certain things from other relationships is an important thing. Like you don't have to get everything from that one person. Like I have a girlfriend and I don't generally talk politics with her very often. That's just not a thing we talk about very much. Uh And that's fine. That's not the basis of our relationship. The basis of other relationships that I have is around talking politics or talking, you know, things of that nature. Like I need that in my life, but I don't necessarily need that from that relationship. And so it annoys me when people talk about, oh, that person's a bad friend or something like that. Because that seems to be this huge complaint that everyone I know has about people. And it's like, are they providing you value? Do you get something out of the relationship that you want to get? If you're getting something out of the relationship that you want to get, be happy with the relationship and move along. If you're not getting what you want out of the relationship, stop being in the relationship. That's how that works. Mm. Being upset with the relationship because it's not what you had in your head is not valuable. It doesn't move you anywhere. I am like that with many people. What? Upset about the relationship? No. Dropping them left and right. Oh, really? Yeah, like sacks of potatoes, man. Ain't got time for nobody. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, makes sense. I'm glad I've held in there. Yeah. Once you lose your value, bam, out of there. Yeah. Actually, all my relationships are based on how much I like you. Even though I'm like, oh, man, you kind of suck. Yeah, but I still like you. I'll still talk to you. But my point is that even if you don't like someone, like, I have people that I consider friends that I don't really like, but I find them interesting and I find that they offer value in my life. This is my point. Like you don't need to like everyone, you know, if someone has really interesting ideas, but they kind of are rude or something like that, like you can deal with that for the valuable ideas. I guess. No, I mean, I would maybe like a person like that. I would never, asked to spend time with but if they were there and i was like well whenever they talk i always get something out of it i'll go talk to them since we're in the same place at the same time but wouldn't you have a better life if you did spend some time with them probably not oh okay if you find that spending time with them improves you feels like that would be a good thing to do sometimes but who's to say that would be an improvement just because they have interesting ideas well that's the premise that i'm working off of oh Um, but i guess i guess the point of it all is when you're judging your relationships and you're determining whether or not to maintain your relationships or the nature of your relationships, you should really be judging the relationship and the value of the, of the relationship to your life rather than judging the other person. Like if you're saying, oh, the other person is not a very good friend, but they do a whole lot of things with me that I really enjoy, then it doesn't matter that they're not a good friend or that they aren't holding up to this high standard that you have. Because like I've had a number of situations in my life where people get angry at me because I'm not there enough for them or I'm not hanging out with them enough or whatever it happens to be because right. I've had changes in my life at various times where I get heavily involved in certain other things and I don't have as much time as I had, you know, like that's not 
my job, like clearly you enjoy the relationship because you want it to be more robust. So how do you get angry that someone isn't around enough because you enjoy the relationship too much? Like it's it just it is a little bit mind bending to me. I mean, sometimes people become accustomed to things. So maybe at the beginning of your friendship, you spent a lot of time together, and now you spend a considerable less amount of time together. And whatever dynamic you had when you spent that amount of time together was where the friendship lied. And now that you don't mm. have that same amount of time, the dynamic changes. And then they're like, hey, what's up? We don't spend as much time anymore. Yeah, I, I suppose. I don't know. But I've had people actually stop being friends with me because they say I'm not hanging out with them enough or I'm not being a good enough friend. And that just seems backward and granted this was years ago now it isn't a recent thing so it might just be a thing that people in their early 20s do more than i don't know older more (laughs) mature people yeah i don't know it just it just seems like people would benefit from trying to see what they get out of a relationship Mm -hmm. and trying to understand the value of it rather than judging it on some holistic overall is this person a good friend or a bad friend like it's not binary this person could be one of 20 different types of friends you have and they can serve that particular function. And if they serve that function and they serve that function well, then they serve that function well and you don't need to worry about the rest of it. That's fair. You might have a friend who's a lot of fun that just makes you relaxed and lets you enjoy yourself and maybe gets you to do things that you wouldn't normally do. Are we talking about Jose? <laughs> <laughs> I was not I was not explicitly thinking of anyone. I was just I'm dropping a lot of Yeah, you are. That's fine. I'm really That's fine. Sorry. For, uh, just on first names, like we both know plenty of Jose's, you know, I'm sure I may have met another Chase at some point, you know, it, it, these could be anybody. But the person who is there to like make you try new things and uh-huh. explore new things is not the same person that you're necessarily going to go to when you're in a prison cell in Cambodia, right? Like mm-hmm. those don't have to be the same person. Right. And every person in your life serves a particular function just because they're not good at serving certain functions doesn't mean that you shouldn't have them in your life. It means that you should not go to them for that. So like I have people that I might argue about politics with, Uh but that doesn't mean that that's somebody that you want to go drinking with or somebody that you want to talk to about relationships or get advice from, you know what I mean? Like, Uh or, or somebody you want to go work out with. Like you can have relationships purely based on certain activities that you like to do with those people. Or you can have relationships purely based upon one thing that that person brings to your life. That's not a bad thing. So saying, oh, this friend cancels on me all the time, or this friend is not very reliable, or this friend is, I don't know, kind of rude and not very cultured or what have you. Like those aren't necessarily deal breakers in terms of friendship. That just means that that's not what that person brings to your life. It's funny because to me, like some of those examples you were using, Hmm. I would definitely consider people like that acquaintances. Why? Because, like, if there's someone I only interact with in a working out environment who I'm just like, hey, you want to go for a run today? You know, help me out by spotting me, whatever. I just, sure. I wouldn't necessarily categorize that person as a friend. Well, you have a much narrower <laughs> definition for what a friend was. You didn't yeah. consider me a friend for, like, six years after we were friends. Oh, so well, I mean, we weren't friends that time, so obviously I didn't <laughs> be a friend then. Okay. Yeah. We just, like, hung out all the time and stuff. What? But we didn't. We didn't start hanging out until way after. And at that point, I considered you a friend. Okay. I feel like it was like two years after, at least, we started hanging out all the time that you considered me a friend. Sometimes people got to earn stuff, man. You can't just give it to them. (laughs) But, okay, I guess my point is 
For me, an acquaintance is not someone that you ever invite to do anything. An acquaintance is the girlfriend of a friend of mine. That might be an acquaintance. Or somebody that I see at parties because they're friends with other friends. They're like friends of a friend. Mm, I wouldn't consider that an acquaintance. You're acquainted to them. You talk to them. You maybe Mm. know things about their life. Like you see them periodically. But you don't have a personal relationship with the person. You You would never invite them to do something because they're not... I mean, unless you were just including everyone you know what i mean that's what an acquaintance is you are acquainted but you are not you don't have a personal relationship that makes sense what you don't agree with that no i said it makes sense okay like for instance our friend carlos we are both acquainted with his parents they're acquaintances i would not call them my friends but like they're definitely acquaintances kind of i feel like i don't know anything about their lives well you know a lot about their children and where they live and i don't know you've spent a lot of time with them Mm, around them, near them, like adjacent to them. I wouldn't say I'd spent <laughs> any time with them, not any substantial time with them. I feel like you have strange definitions for these things, but okay. I don't know. I think it makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Why not? I see what you're Would saying. You... <laughs> <laughs> okay. I do. I see what you're saying. It's just Michael's perspective isn't that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yes. You're viewing it through a slightly different yeah. lens. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about today was uh-huh. this idea of fighting ideas, <laughs> all right? Okay, the idea of fighting ideas? Yes. So I don't know if, like, you, you probably do because you lead more of an internet life than I do. But the idea of warring memes, you, you know this concept? Let's... Or this idea of caricaturizing the opposition or opposing ideas? Yes, I'm very familiar with it. That's okay. all people do now. Right. So as two ideas do battle, they gradually become more of a caricature of themselves and people warp and reshape them into things that they never were originally. Mm-hmm. And this is in battle, right? Mm-hmm. And something that I've been thinking about is this idea that these gradually intensify, but this battle means that people on both sides, like ignoring the meme side of it, just the battle of ideas. Right. It means that people on both sides of a debate kind of have a basic understanding of the opposing side. Uh And one of the things that I was thinking about was if an idea is accepted as wrong and it dies so that essentially no one believes it anymore. Right. Does that defense of kind of understanding the opposition disappear and society kind of lose the inoculation to it, the immunity Hmm. to it? And then if that idea reemerges in 30 years or reemerges in 50 years, does it suddenly become kind of viral again and have the ability to really take over and do damage in a way that it wouldn't have if it was maintained, right? Because I think of this from a from a medical perspective. And right. Like, let's say you took polio and you did wipe out polio completely. Mm-hmm. Well, if polio was reintroduced 100 years later, it would just destroy society, right? right? Because we would have lost all of our immunity to it. Like, And that applies to most diseases. And so I was thinking about that in terms of ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm. What do you think? I would say it's true. And okay, I'm going to, and I probably just say this because I'm left-leaning, but, uh-huh. and we've talked about it, you know, like the nationalism versus globalization and stuff. Yeah. Maybe it's just the news is like sensationalizing it, but they're always showing all these 
clips and speeches and the whole like rise of nationalism mm-hmm. feels in the US to me anyways. Like it's turning into this very like racial, aggressive, anti minority thing amongst more right leaning people. Right. It's ethno nationalism. Right. Which sounds strikingly familiar to an idea that arose 80 years ago and then it got squashed out in the 40s really hard and you know Mm. people are like yeah that's definitely bad we should we should just forget about that let's not do that anymore people kind of forgot about it and now it came back with a vengeance yeah it's just rumbling back yeah no i think that that is uh perhaps not the best example but it is an example of this concept that's not the battle that people have been fighting for the last 50 years right And it's an interesting thing because, like, I was thinking about it from a different perspective, the idea of mercantilism, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that trade creates winners and losers. If we benefit from trade, then they have to lose. And if they benefit from trade, then we have to lose. But you've always been very anti-zero-sum. Right, because it's inaccurate. That's an idea that was essentially destroyed a hundred years ago, right? Mm -hmm. After the Great Depression. Like, that, that was the orthodoxy 300 years ago. Right. And then it gradually got beaten down. And then after World War One, people reflexively went back to it. And then it really was accepted that that's not accurate. Uh-huh. And it's been dead for so long, so completely dead, that I think it coming back now has a natural resonance because no one has grown up hearing, oh, no, that's really stupid, unless they actually are into these issues because it's not even an important enough thing to be in the debate. And that that applies in a similar way to your ethno-nationalist thing, where no one growing up in the 60s or in the 70s or in the 80s in the U.S. would have had to fight the fight of whether or not we should expel other races from the U.S. or anything else like that, right? Right. I I think that that's less so because race has always been kind of a debate and immigration Mm -hmm. has always been kind of a debate in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been the center, but it's, it's always been there, you know? Right. But you're right. The new the new tinge of it really does harken back to fascists of the 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. and it harkens back in a way that had completely died out. It's an interesting thing because the way I look at it is the Cold War framed so many things for an entire generation right. around this battle between communism and kind of everything else. Like two generations. Yeah, yeah, two generations, yeah. and. So I do think that that period caused us to lose our inoculation to a lot of ideas mm-hmm. that existed before it. And it's interesting because I also kind of think that because communism was so thoroughly purged in the U.S. Mm-hmm. that very few people actually understood what communism was right. by the late 90s. Mm-hmm. It was just this terrible thing. Like, that's what everybody knew about it. It was terrible. Right. But then once the Soviet Union fell and communism was no longer this huge evil threat. It was just for our generation, there's this ideology that half the world believed that we don't know anything about. And when people started learning about it, I feel like it had this huge allure for a lot of people of our generation. Mm, That is true. Because they never actually saw debates and arguments because it was just not accepted in the States at all. You know what I mean? So they didn't have any understanding of what the flaws of communism were. So I have so many people that I know of our generation who read Das Capital or read the Communist Manifesto and they were like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this makes so much sense because they didn't really have a conception and didn't have it laid out to them 
what the problems with that system are. They never had to deal with that because right. that was not an actual debate well, going mean, on in society. It does make sense, but it's more like idealistic. Like in an idealistic world, sure. Right. It makes sense if you don't understand reality. Right. Like it doesn't. A apply. whole lot of things can make sense if like gravity didn't exist. Right. Like I really like the idea of communism. I would never like create a communist country, but I really like the idea of it. Like if someone told me like, hey, you want to like join this society of people who just want to be equal? I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. That sounds cool. Uh, how are you guys going to do this? Oh, we're just going to like split everything evenly forever? Y- yeah, forever. And no one's going to be in charge. I mean, someone's got to be in charge. No, nah, I'm good. Not for me. Because, you know, that stuff always goes bad. See, I don't know. I, I And this is my whole thing. This is this is the, the virality of an idea is where I have an issue because some of these ideas are so compelling, like what you just described equality not having any rule or not having any class like that is a really compelling idea for a lot of people right and so if you haven't grown up with the defensive protections of understanding the flaws in it mm-hmm. suddenly it can wash over and just completely take you over without you really understanding the complexities that you're facing yeah. and so what i'm trying to think and to leave communism to the side for a minute mm-hmm. like i think the more obvious one because communism at least has things that are debatable parts of it at least are debatable mercantilism and the free trade thing really Uh doesn't have any defensible arguments like there is no argument that trade is just bad for people right i mean no that's you're right but it has risen up repeatedly that it's this terrible thing now and you see countries across the world wanting to restrict it heavily yeah that stupid buffoon dumb (laughs) order and uh dumb people stuff what i I'm trying to grapple with is if you want to combat an idea, I think the normal way of thinking about how to combat an idea is to try to do what the U.S. did to communism and just hit it over the head over and over again with this is evil, this is terrible, there's nothing good about this until you wipe it out right? in the way that you would a disease. But the problem with ideas is that even if you wipe them out, they can still come back. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if a disease gets completely wiped out, there's no more of a genetic material out there. It can't really reproduce anymore. But an idea can always come back. And so I'm wondering if we should kind of try to figure out a way to leave ideas and not wipe them out, if that's a better defense against them than actually wiping them out. I think that's where, like, history is really useful. Okay. But it becomes really hard to teach all that stuff because there's so much history. So people, they kind of gloss over things and go, oh, look at all these major events, blah, 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 blah. But they're never like, well, these terrible things happened and they mm. hurt everyone. And then we changed it and we had this idea and it benefited everybody. And that's why we do that now. We do that because it helps people. Like no one ever talks about it that way. Or at least in my experience, I've never had anything taught to me that way regarding history. Well, and history is also complicated because like you said, there's so much right. that you can pick out certain things like to go back to our wonderful example of Hitler, you can look at Hitler and say, well, he fixed the currency, he grew the economy, he made Germany important again. So it's like, if you look at certain aspects of it, and obviously Hitler's like terrible things outweigh it so much that it's not really an argument. But right. if you look at people that didn't lose a war, like if you look at people like Stalin, mm-hmm. if you look at people like Mao, these people are still revered in certain circles, even though they did terrible things, because people can focus on things that they perceive as good that they did. 
Right. And so there's so much within history that even if you're looking at one specific person, you can try to focus on things depending on your perspective and where you're coming from that back kind of your thinking on it. I mean, even using your examples, and you're saying they're revered in some circles for the good they did, but yeah. if, if you look at the entirety of the resume and you see that for the most part what they did was not especially helpful or, or hindered everyone as a whole or held someone back or held a large majority of people back or ended up with a lot of people dying or in poverty or what have you. Like you could go, well, the reason that despite these good things they did, all this terrible stuff was happening was because these ideas don't work. And that's how you framed it to remind people these ideas don't work. Here is proof of their failure. Yeah, It would really reaffirm everything for people like it would constantly have that reminder in the head well yeah that can't work it failed we have examples of its failure that's true a populace highly educated on history is less likely to forget about the bad ideas you're right yeah or at least the important bad ideas the highly viral bad ideas Mm -hmm. because you're you're right that like mercantilism as a problem is something that i'm very aware of because i've studied economics so much because i've studied the history of economics so much and Mm -hmm. Like I said, it was the prevailing thought around the world for hundreds of years during like the early colonial period up, right. up until the 1800s. You know, you only become aware of that if you're paying attention to that period of time and history and what governments and companies and things did during that period. So you're right. That is that would be a good way to inoculate people. But yeah, it's still it's still a difficult thing yeah. because you see these raging battles of ideas that everyone seems to be having nowadays and obviously has been having for a long time. Right. But it was this weird occurrence to me as I see some of these ideas that I kind of feel like had been wiped out. Like there was this whole thing in the 90s about the end of history and how liberalism and capitalism just kind of swept over the world and just won, right? Right. As we've talked about a little bit before. But that victory was so complete that it really laid this fallow earth for all of this stuff to come back and rip through it. Yeah. This is some Darth Sidious stuff. What? Star Wars. You know, they wipe out all the Sith. Yeah, no, I know. I know Darth yeah, Sidious. you forget that the Sith are around, but they're there secretly. Oh, because they were like wiped out for thousands of years or whatever. Right. And they were forgotten about and then boom. Then he brought them back and butchered all the Jedi. Galactic yeah. Empire, yeah. Sorry, spoiler alert. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't watched those movies already, you need to get with the times. I know several people who have not seen any of the prequels. Actually, I maybe shouldn't say this, but my girlfriend watched the original trilogy for the first time in the last couple months. What? Yeah, I showed it to her. She liked it. It was good. You know. Wow. But it's funny because we went back to the prequels, got about halfway through episode one, and had to stop and have not continued since. Episode one is hard to get through. It's very long. It's very long, and it's very boring. We got to when they left the underwater city, and... That's just, it just stopped. You should just watch all the clips that Darth Maul is in. That was what I was trying to say. I was trying to tell her, like, we just got to get to the last, like, 10, 15 minutes and it'll be good. Yeah. But. Duel of the Fates. We didn't get there. Yeah, yeah. It's good music. It's good battling. battle, yeah. Yeah. It actually kind of has a plot a little bit at the end. Yeah, you kind of see where they're going with it. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. Oh, man. Good stuff. So that's what I was just saying. Like, you're right. If you forget about something, it's very easy for it to come back and sort of become a argument again after yeah. it's long been beaten well especially in this era where we always want kind of new things right? right it's always perplexing to me how people don't want to go back and read old books 
like I've talked to a number of people and brought up books that I read that were written in like the 60s or something or the 70s or whatever. Uh-huh. And they're like, oh, yeah, but I would read something newer. I, w- I wouldn't want to read the old one. Well, the ideas are still there. You know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you don't need a new version of it. But so many people want that the new ideas all the time that when this idea comes back and it feels fresh and it feels new, that it has this attraction and draw that it wouldn't have had if it had just stayed there the whole time. I think it's funny because, you know, people read old fiction and talk about how relevant it is even to this day and how it can apply to anything. I'm sure there's a lot of really intelligent people who have written smart books and analyzed events in a way that would still be current today. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's interesting because certain genres, like you said, with a lot of novels, Uh have very sustaining popularity and certain genres just don't and i don't fully understand all of that i know we've talked about the shelf life of media before but i'm thinking about it more and more and trying to grapple with why some books have longevity and why some don't like some of them it's obvious like i I remember i was watching all of this stuff around the fire and fury book coming out a month ago or two months ago or whenever it was Uh and i just remember thinking getting that book out and, and i've seen a number of books about like the first year of Trump or whatever. Right. And it's so striking because those books, very much like the news, are really only relevant for the next few months. Like no one's going to read any of those books in five years. Probably not. It's an interesting thing because you have to, if you're writing a book and you write a book so quickly and it's such a long thing to write so quickly and you know it's only going to be relevant for a few months, it's kind of a crazy thing to me. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's weird to think about. Obviously you do that with articles and stuff all the time, so it's not actually that crazy. But, I mean, articles are generally considerably shorter than a novel. Right, but if you're writing them all the time, like mm, writing fair. a 300-page book and writing 100 articles is not that different you know, necessarily. I, I could see how a book like that could be relevant if, like, 10 years from now people want to talk about his presidency. They're just like, oh, this book was relevant. One mundane things that are almost irrelevant the next day in, like, 100 years are suddenly really relevant again because they are really valuable for people to be able to look back on our time and see what was going on in our time from a Mm. local direct source, right? Which, you know, since we're talking about this whole, like, bad ideas coming back after they've been Mm -hmm. stamped out, I feel like we spend a lot of time when we talk about American history glossing over presidents that weren't great and people that maybe were ineffective. Maybe we should talk a lot about those people, too, just to remind people that these people were terrible and this is why they were terrible and they were ineffective because this is why they were ineffective. Just to remind people, just to let them know, hey, you know. You're right. I think examining the failures from history is at least as valuable as examining the successes. No, no, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that. I think it's hard because, as we just said, history right. has so much. I feel like there's got to be a way to mix history and like English together in school you mean yeah Hmm. well I've long thought that English is a kind of I was gonna say stupid class but it is is kind of a bad class to have in school like certainly in middle school and high school you don't need it anymore like I I get it that you need it in like primary school or elementary school or grammar school Mm -hmm. whatever you call it but by the time you get to the age of like 12 I don't think you need a class dedicated to English anymore Mm, I would disagree why I've been 
quote unquote college essays that were hot garbage. Yeah, that's true. I'm not saying that people at the age of 12 are great writers. Right. I are as saying, good as they will ever be. Well, then they need some kind of class to help them put sentences together and ideas in like coherent ways. And this is a fundamental disagreement that I have with how education is often implemented. But you're right. People need to have a class that trains them to be able to use the language better and to be able to write better and communicate better. But that is not necessarily a class that focuses on literature and literature critiquing and analysis. Mm -hmm. As you said, mixing history and English. History, if you have to write papers all the time and things like that, and you have to read history books all the time, that is dealing with the language just as much as English would be. If you had a philosophy class, it would do the same thing. In the same way that I don't I don't think English and math, English and math are extremely important, but I don't think English and math should be dedicated classes throughout high school. I think that they should be integrated into applied subjects because I think that both of them involve complex foundational skills that at, at, at their basis level need to be taught as independent skills. But once you get a basic understanding of them, in order to improve your capacity with them, they need to be learned through other subjects. They need to be okay. learned through the implementation of them rather than trying to just practice the skill in a vacuum. Ah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's how we're going to end the night. <laughs> Apply yeah. math and English to other subjects in a way where you still learn the math and the English, but better. Yeah, math is more easily learned in the structures of chemistry or the structures of physics than it is by itself. And English is better learned in philosophy class or in history class than it is in English class. So I'm not going to disagree with you there. My philosophy classes have been very enlightening as regards to writing and analyzing stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because when you're writing an English class about nothing, you're writing about some random book written by Dickens. What does that like? It, it, it has no consequence. It doesn't seem to matter. Whereas if you're writing about important ideas that you're thinking about that you're struggling with, that matters. And figuring out how to communicate that well and how to put that together in a convincing, effective way is going to drive students much more than, oh, I'm writing about some stupid thing written 300 years ago that has no relevance to anything. So, Yeah. Yeah. Relevant. Relevant. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, should I mention our Twitter? By the way, we have a Twitter that I post the shows to all the time. Oh, but... snaps. We have a Twitter. Drop the name. Um, hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Holding. Ah, uh, it's underscore WWOTS. Ah, uh, at underscore WWOTS, sponsored by yeah. John's Beard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. My beard sponsors everything. All right, so you can find our show notes and everything we talked about today at subjectradio.com slash WWOTS slash 014. And if you want to reach out to us, ask any questions that we might discuss on the show or anything else you can reach out to us via twitter at underscore wwots and feel free to share the show support us in any way you like we have a whole page about how to support the show on our website and yes. uh, i guess i will talk to you next week yeah mike you definitely will okay cool anything you wanted to say if you're listening to this i love you thank you for listening <laughs> to this okay uh i'll talk to you next week mike all right. Bye. All right. Bye.
oh yeah, I mean, of course I'm not saying that someone that has like a flaw is immediately a bad friend. That's just part of who they are. Well, but I guess, I mean, even if they are a bad friend, they could still be worthwhile to maintain. I mean, by your definition, it seems if they produce some kind of value, then they become a worthwhile friend and a worthwhile friend is a good friend, right? Well, no, not necessarily. Mm, that's weird. Worthwhile and good are, I think, mm. different things. Like, I, I think broccoli is a worthwhile food. It is worth eating. It's good. I don't good. necessarily think it's... I mean, broccoli's a bad example because it is actually pretty good. <laughs> but there are some things that are worthwhile eating that are not very good. And that doesn't mean... I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. yeah let, let's move along. Okay. Okay. But you see what I'm saying, right? <laughs> I do. I, I do get what you're sense. saying. <laughs> yeah. Saying something is valuable but not good is a strange way to think about yeah that, maybe we should um we should probably talk about that friend thing in more detail in the future yeah i think maybe. that'd be fun i think we'd have a good conversation about that